Welcome to Good Business, a weekly podcast to help you create a business that is good for people, planet, and the profit line. I'm Chris Edwards. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I created my first business, Honeycombers, when I was at the tender age of 28. And that business is a lifestyle guide to Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bali, and now employs over 30 people across four countries. Last year, I founded a new business called Launchpad, which is a community movement designed to support entrepreneurs who aspire to create conscious companies. Launchpad has members across six countries and runs around about 30 events every month. We run masterclasses, coaching and connection calls, as well as peer group sessions. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial ride and understand how successful and clever innovators and business leaders bring people, planet and profit line together to build better businesses. What does it really take to create a heart-led business? Join me and together we're going to find out. Before I get into it, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm recording this podcast on, Bundjalung Country. I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and I extend my respects to all traditional cultures. Okay, let's get into it. Do you ever meet someone who's incredibly accomplished, successful, and should be a little bit intimidating, but they're not? They're just really down-to-earth friendly and relatable? Well, my next guest is exactly that person. Steve Melheist was one of the founding partners of Property Guru, and he's had enormous success building that platform from zero to 1,500 staff. And the audience of Property Guru is now something like over 40 million consumers monthly. He's raised over $400 million in funding and done five M&A deals. He's done an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, is there anything this guy hasn't done? Uh, and he's also invested and, and invested in or mentored over 20 green tech startups. He's really passionate about tackling climate change and inequality. And I got to say, I just loved this chat with Steve. I think he shares so openly what his passions are, but also what's so hard about being an entrepreneur. And I feel like I could have spent hours chatting to him and I've learned so much. And it's a conversation that I keep going back to and thinking about and talking about with my friends and family. So I think you're going to love this episode today. Let me know what you think. I won't let any more out of the bag. Let's jump right into it. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We met many moons back when I was like a deer in the headlights, just starting Honeycombers. And someone said to me, you should really meet Steve. He started Property Guru. He's a really nice guy. And I think I sat down and had a coffee with you and kind of was just like, "How? what am I doing? How am I doing it? So it's nice to have a full circle moment. Can we go back to the beginning, Property Guru? Let's just, can you briefly share about it's a wildly successful property mega site in Singapore and across Asia, but how did it come about? 
So um, how it came about was um, I was I was renting a property in Singapore. I was running uh, another startup, which is a mobile content startup, which was failing, <laughs> undercapitalized, and uh, for lots of reasons it was not going where it should have been going. And then I had to move out of the property I was renting um, in 2007 at the height of a big property boom, uh, much like what we're seeing now, I guess. And um, yeah, and so the first thing I did because I've been in Singapore for about two years at that stage, I went online, and to my surprise, there was nothing nothing online. And um, it was a hugely frustrating process. I had to wade through inches and inches and inches thick, if you remember those days, of classified ads, tens of thousands of three lines of text. And so as a recently arrived foreigner in Singapore, it was really, really hard to navigate because it was like Villa Marina telephone number. So no photographs, no, no videos, no floor plans, no price information, nothing really. And so it was a horrendous process for me looking to rent a property. But then I started to think, okay, look, if I'm going to buy a property, um, I'm going to spend in Singapore like half a million dollars or more, um, and I've got no information at all, um, I'm completely powerless. And so therefore, I'm relying on an agent who's maybe going to try and sell me something or a property developer trying to sell me something or my friends and family who perhaps don't know the real estate market uh, advising me. Um, it's uh, you know, the single biggest thing you're going to make an investment in your life. But if you don't have any information, you, you're completely powerless and it's a stressful process. And so that got me thinking about, well, how do we make this a, um, uh, a less scary process, less stressful process, and kind of put put the information and the tools and the and the transparency in the hands of the the consumer, and so kind of set out to try to make the the market more transparent and also help consumers make more transparent property decisions, more confident property decisions. So we sort of you know hacked it together, and you know miraculously, uh, twelve or thirteen years later, you know we have about fifty million people now using the service and uh, and across five countries. And so um, it's uh, it was a hell of a journey, but um, you know obviously we made a lot of mistakes, and there's a bit of a bumps along the way. Um, but yeah, that's how it started. Wow. And did you have any experience in creating like a, a tech platform or a website platform before you started? Yeah, I mean, I'd been, um, my, my background is, uh, is building tech companies, and it was initially telecoms and then internet content mobile. And so, yes, I mean, the businesses I've been working with and building, they've all been in that kind of space. I didn't have direct coding experience, and so that was going to be a bit of a challenge. And, and, and thankfully, you know, serendipitously, you know, I was introduced to my co-founder, Yanni, by one of the investors of the company, or was the startup I was running, and um, and he introduced us, and, and Yanni was dating a uh, real estate agent, now married with a kid, and um, had started to build a property valuation website, but wanted to build a you know, online uh, real estate marketplace, um, and so you know, I was still running a startup. He was he was consulting and doing uh, consultancy, software consultancy in India, um, and so uh, we started to work together temporarily, it's all part time on the weekends, and then eventually worked you know seven days a week together. But um, you know, he, he he's he's a software developer, and so he had that kind of product expertise and and coding expertise, and I was kind of at the front of the house, the business development, sales, marketing, uh, you know, doing all the sort of media interviews and this kind of thing. So that's kind of roughly how we split things. So without Yanni, I guess we wouldn't be where we are. Um, uh, you know, so I was very, very thankful that, you know, kind of it, it worked out well. I mean, it's 
by accident more than anything else, you know. So he and I are fundamentally different uh, in many ways. Like eight box, eight Myers Briggs, eight boxes. I think we're polar opposites in all of those eight, which is either going to mean you work really well together and complement each other, <laughs> or you're going to explode. Uh, and thankfully, we uh, kind of complemented each other. And uh, yeah, I remember you saying to me once when we caught up, "How many staff do you have?" And I think I had about twenty at the time. And you were said, "Keep it under thirty. Like that's the sweet spot." And I think Property Guru has, what, is it 1,500 staff now or something crazy? Correct. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't obviously heed your own advice on that, but... um, Of course not. Of course not. Do as I say, not as I do. That's my motto. (laughs) So what were some of the challenges of growing a business from zero to 1,500 staff and, and now it's reaching, is it 40 million people a month across five countries? Is that right? Yeah, we have we have about 40 to 50 million people every month using the services, uh, looking for real estate or, or looking for mortgages um, on, on the site. So, you know, definitely I felt like, you know, I guess the conversation I had with you, it, it definitely changed when it went to around about, you know, between 30 to 50. So I guess the big impact for us was where we went from one market to multiple markets, which then led to you know, the fundamental big increase in scaling because we went, we spent the first three or four years building Singapore um, and that was about 50 staff um, and as a profitable company uh, in Singapore, we had a sort of 80% market leadership position at that stage uh, and which we'd kind of worked very hard to achieve over the first four, four plus years. And so we felt, okay, now we just cut and paste and roll it out across multiple markets because we've, co- we've conquered Singapore and it should be easy just to cut and paste now um, and how wrong we were. But um, uh, yeah, so during that process, we hired about 250 people. Uh, in a relatively short space of time, and then lost 250 people, and then rehired 250 people, um, and uh, and so, you know, having spent four years doing one country and then going to effectively four countries in four months, um, it's definitely not the way to do things. <laughs> uh, and um, we put a lot of stress on the company, and so I, I learned a lot, uh, which in hindsight sounds really naive, um, but you know, I guess we had to perhaps go through the experience, but. You know, first of all, cutting pace across multiple markets doesn't work because every market is very different in terms of culture, in terms of people, in terms of hiring, in terms of com- competition, in terms of purchasing or renting property. Um, but also when you kind of do things so fast, like, you know, you do the quantity and then the quality goes. And so, you know, as I said, we, we hired 250 people, lost 250 people. The whole, the whole of the Singapore organization was just focused on Singapore. And then we kind of stretched them into managing and helping launch Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, you know, sales, marketing, hiring, pricing, launch plans, you know, the website, the mobile apps for consumers and agents, Android and iPhone, multiple language. All, all at the same time. So, of course, the Singapore team got completely stretched because they were like suddenly launching multiple markets. Um, of course, Singapore business then kind of suffered as well. Morale then suffered as well. Um, and um, we then had to kind of go into a bit of a, a fixed mode and then think a little bit about, well, actually, why is this not working? Well, clearly, we don't have the regional organization. You don't have processes in place. You don't have systems in place. And so we had to then professionalize the whole organization. Um, and, you know, started off with the finance organization, you know, put proper ERP in place, hired a CFO, and then thought about the marketing organization, then thought about the HR organization and the product organization. And so started to put the building blocks of that leadership uh, process in place and, and the systems in place. But basically, it was a, you know, crazy three years of 
you know, scaling super fast, which we did because we were really, really worried about losing the opportunity, which it felt like you know, that kind of healthy or perhaps unhealthy paranoia. If we don't do something now, we're going to miss the opportunity. The barrier to entry for a property website was, you know, we were getting people posting on on these web developer or software software developer sites saying, we want to clone propertyguru.com.sg, please help us. And so we were seeing all this increased competition. You had one or two or three players in each market coming on. And so we felt we had to run, but in hindsight, perhaps we shouldn't have done it quite so fast. And so we had you know three years of a huge amount of stress, almost broke the company through that process. And it had to kind of then fix and put in place the proper building blocks. And so we kind of had to clear up the mess that we had made. Um, and so it was a hugely stressful, stressful time. Wow. It's a great story and it sounds like... It, it sounds obvious, but... <laughs> it does and it doesn't. Like, I definitely think as an entrepreneur, you're so optimistic. You're like, sure, we can do this. And you're also a bit fearful of adding unnecessary costs or... But yeah. So now today you're not day-to-day in Property Guru. So I'd love to know how did you get out of managing the business that you created? And you're still uh, on the board? I'm still on the board. Yeah, yeah. So, so for me, it was during that mess uh, of, you know, scaling, you know, I was in Malaysia 45 times and Thailand 35 times a year. And, you know, was a, I was away. And during that time, 10 years too late, but uh, had had kids. Um, and so we had twins. Um, and so I missed seeing the twins grow up for the first three years of their life, just because I was, I was just in the business working crazy and traveling a lot. And so one day I woke up and I kind of had this epiphany that, you know, if I carry on doing this, I'm going to miss seeing my kids grow up and I can't rewind that time. And it was a bit of a shock to me. And so that then became the, my priorities at that point changed. And I said, look to my wife, you know, by the time the kids are five, I'll be out of the day-to-day operations. And she went, bullshit, it's not going to happen. And so I, I took that as a challenge. And so I then started to put in place a succession plan. So to kind of persuade the board that this made sense and the job of any good leader is to build a succession plan. And then we had to then, you know, really put some building blocks in place, which were, you know, first of all, professionalizing the organization and leadership and put some of the stuff I just mentioned, but also around diversifying, because even though we'd expanded to multiple markets, 90% of the revenue was still in Singapore. You know, 90% of that was still coming from one customer base, which was the real estate agents. And so then, you know, how do you diversify organically and inorganically? So we acquired some companies as well to kind of diversify the revenue base, added in another country, which is Vietnam. And so then we got to stage where, you know, it was approaching 50% of the revenues were outside of Singapore. It was more like, you know, 60, 40 agents and non-agents. And so, and then of course, you know, hire a CEO, which we thought would be a really little challenge, but actually, you know, wasn't as challenging as we thought it was going to be because actually a little, quite a lot of frustrated, uh, super talented leaders in the, in, in the region who were working for large big tech companies, but increasingly matrix management and bureaucracy and things. Well, we presented a small, uh, organization, um, but the ability to control everything, you know, so product, sales, marketing, you know, HR, everything basically. And so actually we had some time to be, and we, we know we, we, we selected Harry and Harry's done an absolutely just amazing job. And so that made my job a lot easier to kind of manage that transition. So into 2018, when I handed all the operations over, um, and you know, the, the momentum just continued and just him and the team had done an amazing job. Does Harry see his kids? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> you must have done so- something to make it more manageable for him, right? Well, I don't know. I think it's maybe it's a little bit around personality as well. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a workaholic, so I just need, as, I, as I mentioned right at the very start before we started, uh, yeah, my inability to say no to things. And so, uh, yeah. 
And so how do you manage that? I mean, you did say when we when we started, you said, I've got 12 meetings today. And I was like, quick, let's get going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, how do you manage that? I mean, I, I have I suffer from a similar thing in that I get very excited and say yes to lots of things. But what's your trick to kind of coming back to work-life balance and focusing on, you know, the, the why you're actually doing the work? Well, I don't have a solution for that, to be honest. I think um, I'm actually seeking professional help. <laughs> uh, I actually have a, you know, my first official coaching session today on this subject to get to get some help. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's something which I'm, I'm trying to manage myself better so I can actually get the balance better. We'll have to come back for a part two. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'll have that conversation in three or four months. Uh, but see where I am at that point. Um, but yeah, just uh, being a little bit more disciplined and putting some filter on things and just getting the balance right and managing time a bit better. But yeah, I'm not the best person to ask on that. Have you used business coaches and advisors before? Yeah, yeah. I've been very, very fortunate that, you know, I've had some fantastic, I I couldn't have done it without the support I had, but, you know, particularly from my wife through the whole process. But also I was a member of this organization called EO, Entrepreneur Organization, um, which is about 18,000 entrepreneurs and business owners. And, uh, you know, met my forum of uh, eight of us for four hours once a month for about 10 or 11 years. And that support around business, personal, family, you know, wider how you manage your life a little bit and some of the challenges of doing that as well as being an entrepreneur um, were invaluable. And so, you know, last night I had I, I took my forum out for dinner. Without them, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did with Property Guru. They were just, just the support I had during the, the cha- challenging times was invaluable. Um, but also had, you know, business coaches at certain times, you know, so during those scaling, uh, in, you know, that we went one market to four markets. During that time, I had a, had a coach um, who was a friend of one of the investors who now is one of the the partners, managing partners, one of the VCs here at Monks Hill. Uh, so a guy called Peng, inspirational entrepreneur, built many businesses and taken, either sold their businesses or taken them public on, on, on in the US and now running a running a successful VC in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and he helped enormously around two areas. One was around scaling sales organizations, but particularly around building accountability. You know, it's one of the areas that Yan and I struggled with was as we grew, we were so integral to all decision making and problem solving, et cetera, that, you know, um, we were frustrated by look, the team's grown now from 30 to 50 to 250 to, but people are not owning the problem. So how do we get that going? And so he's helped us enormously around that. And and and, and I remember sitting in the workshop with him once, and he's like, "So why do you think people are not owning?" And he's like, "Why do you think? Why do you think people are holding a mirror up to our faces?" So, oh, I see. So it's because we're going in fixing the problem each time, not holding them accountable. And uh, yeah, so I learned some important lessons from him around that. And then and then and then latterly around the whole succession plan, because obviously, you know, going from a uh, an organisation for the first ten or eleven years, which has been founder led, to then having a transition process to a professional CEO. Um, is obviously highly risky, uh, highly risky for us as a founders, highly risky for this new CEO, Harry, coming in. You know, are these crazy founders going to actually let go? You know, and also from the investor's point of view, you know, from, uh, you know, we're large private equity companies as uh, two, you know, TPG and KKR and as our shareholders. And uh, so how, how do you manage the risk of that whole succession plan, transition plan? And so we had a coach helped us with that, you know, coaching me, coaching my co-founder and coaching um, Harry, and then also all three of us together, which is hugely uncomfortable because all the stuff that you've been sharing about your concerns and, you know, complaints and it all came out into the open. And then, uh, you know, we have these very awkward conversations around that. Um, but but that, was, that, that definitely helped manage the risk and the transition process. Um, and... Um, 
I mean, personally, I, I struggled with the whole whole thing, the whole transition process, letting go. Uh, discovered that I had an ego in the process. You know, I actually quite enjoyed the town halls and the leadership organisations and, you know, the media interviews. And I didn't think, you know, I didn't think I had an ego, but suddenly I realised I have an ego. Yeah, I, I kind of struggled with that for about 18 months or so. I had a bit of a sort of a, a dip into the crisis of confidence and mild depression. Um, and uh, so letting go was actually very hard as, as a founder. I think, um, you know, my wife said, look, look, you're the most miserable I've ever known you. Why don't you just take the CEO role back? Is that what you want? I said, no, 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 that's not what I want. <laughs> she of shut up then and get on with it um but uh, no it was it was uh, it was definitely it was definitely a challenging time because i guess it felt like identity was so intertwined with the organization that kind of stepping out and having some something outside of that after such a long time was was quite hard so um yeah i had to I had to kind of go through that journey in that process which was hugely uncomfortable but um yeah that was about a year and a half Wow. Wow. And now you're on the board, so you get to give advice or help with direction, but you don't call the shots, right? Correct. Which is... um yeah, I guess have some of the history of the organization. I've obviously have some of the relationships still with some of our partners and uh, clients and competitors who you know now want to be acquired. And so you know I have some of that, but also just around you know the strategy and direction, and also how we kind of steer the business over the next sort of uh, five to ten years. But yes, it's a, it's a different role, and uh, but uh, hugely interesting and another area of learning. So, the, you know, working with uh, you know some a whole bunch of non non execs on the board and non exec chairman, but also the shareholders at a different kind of different kind of level. Uh, so it's been really, really interesting. This podcast is brought to you by Launchpad, a community movement for conscious entrepreneurs. If you're seeking a sounding board, advice, masterclasses, or maybe just looking for a network of people that are in your corner to support you, come to thelaunchpad.group website and check it out. We'd love to meet you. And when did the idea of Wavemaker come about? Yeah, so Wavemaker Impact. So that kind of came about. So 2018, I, I kind of took a step back and the whole idea was to spend time with my kids uh, and see my kids again and also thinking a bit about what next. And so as I was spending a bit of time going on vacation for the first time in a long time with my family, uh, suddenly, you know, everywhere, I'm not sure if you remember, but 2018 was quite a pivotal year. As the climate drum was beating extraordinarily loud and louder and louder and louder. And it was a year that, you know, it's record extreme weather damage caused. So it's like $300 billion of uh, weather damage caused. You know, there were record temperatures in Siberia. There were wildfires in Australia and also in, in the West Coast of the US. You know, record floods, record droughts. The year that the climate scientists came together and actually for the first time reached consensus that actually climate change is driven by human beings and actually it's accelerating. It's actually going to be bigger than actually everyone, everyone kind of initially thought. Um, and also the year that Greta went on the climate, you know, to their climate strike and started to raise attention around that. And also Larry Fink at BlackRock did the first letter to saying that we're going to be moving more into ESG and away from fossil fuel. And so the more I researched it, the more, well, first of all, I got worried um, and scared for the future of my kids. And, uh, you know, all the kind of stuff that I'd taken for granted as a kid in terms of nature, walking through a forest or swimming in an ocean, not filled with plastic or, you know, trivial things like seeing snow and, and skiing, quite likely not going to be there for my kids and certainly for their kids. And, you know, with hundreds of millions of people displaced, you know, increasing food security issues, increasing crisis, and so the stability of the world are kind of under threat. Uh, and also just extreme weather changes in terms of, you know, higher temperatures, lower temperatures, higher winds, uh, higher floods, more drought, uh, all in the same country um, at different times. I think kind of this is the kind of prospects of that, 
made me feel really, really sad and, and also scared for the future for my kids. And so I thought, look, I can I can enjoy my life, you know, and you know, buy an island or <laughs> go yachting or something, or I can look my kids in the eye and say, look, I, I know how bad this thing was going to get, and I, I tried to play a very, very small role in it. So that became then the focus for me. So what seemed obvious in 2007, 2008 for, for building Property Guru, it seemed like the most obvious thing that I need to go, big problem, big opportunity. You know, 2018 suddenly became crystal clear to me that the most obvious thing that I need to be working on now is around climate change and how do I play a role around climate change. So then I kind of got slightly overwhelmed, but where do you start? Because it's such an overwhelming subject, all-encompassing subject, which, you know, affects everything. It is nature, governments, countries, companies, consumers, investors, everything, you know, physics, biology, chemistry, it's everything. And so where do you even begin to start on this? And so that was quite overwhelming initially, but I thought, okay, well, what I do know is how to build tech companies. And what I do know is, you know, I've been angel investing and working with founders and and, and uh, founding teams and startups, helping them scale their businesses. And so in 2018, all of my angel investing that I was doing uh, for the previous, you know, 15 years or so, then flipped into just focusing on that space. And so I invested in 25 companies, green tech companies, uh, under the Planet Rise umbrella, who are all addressing either planet or people challenges. Uh, So predominantly climate tech, but also social equality. So people, particularly at the bottom of the pyramid, women-led enterprises, people are marginalized in society who are going to be most affected by climate change. And so that became the focus. And then during that journey, realized that actually, if I want to have a really big impact, I really want to scale this, doing it on my own, with my own money and my own time, is clearly not scalable. And so to have a really big impact, the conclusion I came to was to to build a fund and work with other people to, to build that fund and have a bigger impact. And so that then led to uh, conversations with my now partners in, in Wavemaker and so uh, Wavemaker Impact. So one of the companies I invested was an energy efficiency company in Singapore called Table Pointer. And I invested in this company, which was a spin out or a, a venture that had been created by NG Factories. So the venture builder part of NG, which is one of the largest energy companies in the world. And um, so they'd built this company. And so the two people and the team inside the NG, NG Factory, built this. And so we started talking. And they were increasingly frustrated by the, the corporate constraints and bureaucracy and, and limiting geographic and also sector-focused for what they were doing. And they wanted to do something around net zero. Uh, and so we started having conversations, and through those conversations and also this investment table pointer brought along another entrepreneur, Doug, and also the the, the managing partner from Wavemaker Partners, Paul. And so the five of us, so Marie, Quentin, uh, Paul, Doug, and myself, we had an idea two years ago, which we then formed into Wavemaker, which we launched um, about 15 months ago. Um, so, you know, just over 15 months ago, it's just really an idea. Um, but the idea was, and the ambition and the mission was, how do we mitigate 10% of the global greenhouse gas emissions by 2035? Um, and so that became the North Star and is the North Star of what we're doing. And, um, and we're starting in Southeast Asia. And so we're focusing on building uh, fast-growing climate tech companies, which take existing technology uh, and rapidly scale adoption of existing technology to reduce emissions in the short term. Because a lot of the investment going in is around new science, new technology, transformational technology, which we, we absolutely need in sort of 30 to 50 years time. But it's going to take that kind of length of time to scale and build the infrastructure. You know, think about hydrogen, think about new kinds of nuclear science and, and nuclear technology and, and thinking about carbon capture. This is transformational technology which is going to play a role in the future and help us get to our net zero ambition. 
emissions. But what do we do in the meantime? Because every day, every minute, every second, we're pumping up emissions, which unfortunately stay there for hundreds of years. So what we do ne- what we do today is going to impact the next two or three generations, and it compounds. And so how do you stop emissions today and then the next 5, 10, 20 years? We can't wait 30 years because... In the meantime, we're going to make things a lot worse. So what can we do today? And we have all the technology we need today to reduce emissions by 50%. So the challenge is not technology or science. It's around adoption of what already exists. You know, Why do we not have solar panels on every roof in Southeast Asia? It's not a technology reason. The cost is significantly cheaper already. And so it's a business model reason. It's an incentive reason. You've got maybe a business, a tenant in a building, you've got a building owner, and you've maybe got an energy company. And all incentives do not line up. So how do you, how do you think about business model innovation, which kind of addresses the incentives and the behaviors of the key stakeholders and makes their life better by increasing their revenue or reducing their cost? Uh, so you provide them with economic value, which, for, but in turn, that gives uh, emissions impact for us. So we, we focus on building 100 by 100 companies, a company which can have the opportunity to build 100 megaton emissions reduction by the next sort of seven or 10 years and 100 million revenue. Um, and so we spend a lot of time getting conviction that this venture that we are going to invest in and build um, uh, can reduce those emissions by um, by up to 100 megatons. And we realize how hard that is because just to give you a kind of a view or your listeners a view, uh, you know, Singapore is about 50 megatons. And so we're talking about two Singapores per venture, per startup, essentially. And so we think, how do, how do we do that? Well, we spend a lot of time getting conviction around what the how, how we could get there, but also we take experienced entrepreneurs, you know, so an entrepreneur who's perhaps built one or two businesses already, maybe it's a fintech, maybe it's a prop tech, maybe it's a legal tech or whatever it might be, um, and who now wants to do something in the sustainability space, but like me four, four or five years ago, didn't know where to start or don't, don't know where to start. And what we do is we take three venture builders in our team, we're essentially like management consultants, ex-founders of businesses, and we work with them intensively for six months and we kind of validate, get a, get a you know, we speak to hundreds of cust- potential customers we get to a stage where we can identify there is a pain point with this, this customer, an economic pain point typically. And then how do we address this in a low emission solution? Um, and so therefore you think about, well, you know, 18 million farmers, horticultural farmers, for example, they're all using diesel water pumps to irrigate their fields. But there actually is there's a cleaner and cheaper alternative, which is a solar water pump. It's not rocket science. How do we get these 18 million farmers to move from diesel pumps to water pumps? And so the first thing is, well, how do you, what's the incentive for them to do it? The incentive for them to do it is actually, if you move, if you t- replace this diesel water pump with a solar water pump, there's the farmer who's earning about $100 a month um, and feeding a family of five people can earn an extra 30 to 50% income, net income. So there's a real economic reason why they should do it. And by doing that at scale, suddenly you start to then have a really, really big impact on emissions. And from there, once you have that farmer trust and they're using the solar pump, then you start to say, well, actually, how can we help you a little bit around biofertilizer rather than chemical fertilizer to increase your yield, reduce your cost, but for us, reduce emissions? How do you think about precision fertilization? And, and how do you think about precision irrigation? How do you think about storing your food? And so we then stack you know, solar pump, there's a, there's a soil quality and biofertilizer plus storage. Suddenly, you know, with a, with a, maybe a million farmers or half a million, you start to get towards the 100 megaton and 100 million revenue opportunity. And so that was our first venture, a company called Agros. 
It just closed a $2 million round, um, and it's increased by about 5, 5x from when we first entered in terms of the, the revenue growth. It's on the track to do sort of um, $4 million this year revenue and about $10 million next year. So it's growing nicely. So these are fast-growing ventures delivering triple bottle lines. So, you know, whilst our impact measurement is emissions, and so, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or CO2 equivalent, as we call it, and also, um, um, and also livelihoods. So, you know, the farmers in this case are getting 30 50% extra income, uh, which impacts not just their family, but also the community as well, but also generates profit for the venture. Uh, so the, the company is operating at operating level EBITDA positive. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great case study for the kind of things that we're doing. And so the founder was like, was a previous management consultant, had his own little startup, um, and now is building this one with us. And so, yeah, the plan is to build, you know, we need to get to 50 of those uh, at unicorn level in order for us to get to our 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a big, hairy goal. We're just getting started. Sorry, 50 companies to unicorn level? To get to our five gigaton target, which is 10% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. So how do you do that? You focus on, first of all, Southeast Asia. And then we think about, okay, look, what, maybe go deeper into India, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Europe, Latin America. And so we have 15 hubs, each of them producing, you know, uh, you know, 15 to 20 uh, of these companies in a period of three years. Um, and so, you know, we're going to have, you know, hundreds of these companies, hopefully 50 of them will uh, become unicorns. By, and we de-risk it by, by spending a lot of time getting experienced entrepreneurs and also spending six months validating and then next 18 months helping scale some of these companies. And is the first 18 months or the, I suppose it's like the first two years, the most critical? Is that once you've got it up and running and you can see the trend line and the take up and you've got the formula right? Yeah, so so it's very intensively the three venture builders plus the entrepreneur, very intensively for the first six months. After that point, we, we invest $650,000 and then we work for the next 18 months very, very closely with them, helping them, you know, go to market, prove the concept, monetize and scale uh, to a point where it becomes kind of a pre-series A or a series A stage company. So at that stage, we probably invested maybe $2 million into the company. Um, and then, um, you know, hopefully then they're onto the, the sort of the, the, the further, you know, from going from zero to one, the one to 10 stage at that point. And we kind of think at that point, we'll take a bit more of a step back. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I mean, the critical thing is like, you know, proving the product market fit and also scaling in one or two markets uh, over that two years. Mm. And what's the average run rate that you're seeing? Like, you know, if you've got 50 companies, how many get to that two-year mark? Well, I don't know, because we've only been doing it 15 months now. Uh, <laughs> I mean... Um, How's it going so far? Yeah, so... So far, so good, right? So that first one is now on track to do 4 million revenue, uh, operating uh, EBITDA positive. Um, they have 2,000 farmers um, and, you know, will be growing at 4 or 5x per annum for the next few years. And so uh, great first case study. The second one, you know, built from scratch again um, around agri-food waste. And by, by the way, not surprisingly, because it was starting in Southeast Asia, what we realized was the first thing we had to do is build a carbon emissions map because it didn't exist for Southeast Asia. And what, what it shows, which is maybe a bit surprising to people maybe listening in, in Europe or in, or in the US or more developed economies, is that 50% of all of the emissions is in the food, agri and land use space. You know, Whereas 
all of the investment, uh, climate tech investment, and also entrepreneurs all focused around mobility. So, you know, EV companies, battery companies, battery swap companies, battery rental companies, battery management companies, uh, you know, two wheel, three wheel, four wheel, uh, or, um, you know, charging companies. Uh, that's where all the action is going, but actually the emissions are elsewhere. And so that's the reason, by the way, that we're doing these venture builds because, you know, if we really want to have a meaningful impact on emissions in a short to medium term, we need the entrepreneurs and the money to be flowing to the areas where the emissions are. And so that's why we're building. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so, so yeah, so we, we, you know, we're onto our sixth venture now, um, and five of those six are in the food and agri space. And so they're all, you know, making, making good progress. You know, we're, um, the, 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 the next one was a, it was a agri food waste company, which is turning, aims to turn seven billion tons annually of food waste, pineapple waste, uh, uh, pineapple waste, uh, palm waste, um, rice waste, husks and rice straw into, uh, biochar, um, which is then used to regenerate the soil and use as a fertilizer for soil. And so, um, that then helps the, the rice, the rice or the palm or the pineapple mill increase their profits by 2x. And so the, the mills get more income, um, uh, by rather than this waste being burnt to burn or left to rot to create methane, they turn the waste into something valuable, which they can actually sell back to the farmers who, by the way, then use it to regenerate the soil and increase yields rather than using chemical fertilizers. And so it has a multiple effect, and not just an economic effect, but also a, um, uh, an emissions effect. The third one is around um, uh, methane from rice. So about a third of all of the methane uh, generated in Southeast Asia is from rice. And not many people know that. They think of, you know, Methane comes from cars, cows farting, or it comes from oil and gas, right? Um, but uh, a third of the methane comes from rice. And so what happens is the rice fields are flooded, and it's, and it's basically that water is perfect breeding ground for the bacteria that produces methane. Um, and um, very simply, by draining the rice paddy fields and then refilling them, you reduce the methane by about 80%. Um, but the reason why the farmers don't do that is because it's extra work. They've got to kind of pump the water in and pump the water out. It, there's a perception it increases pests or increasing weeds, um, uh, whereas actually it has a, a better impact around uh, yield, in fact. And so we're, we're, we're partnering with Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Ventures on that one and also on, with Temasek, the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Singapore. Um, and so we have a, a joint venture uh, where we are building a, it's a huge opportunity and huge problem. Um, and that we're just in the process of scaling that and finding the, the founder CEO to run that business currently. Um, and then we have a, a few others, and one of those is around renewable energy to run to put solar panels on 10 billion homes in in Southeast Asia. How do you make that happen? How do you, what's the business model for that? And how does green finance play a role as part of the mortgage process? And so that's kind of the business model for that that company. And one around soil regeneration, one around palm degraded land um, in Southeast Asia. How do you regenerate the, and what's the business model around that? So those are those are early stage ones. Um, so yeah, and we're doing our first one in Australia, New Zealand, uh, in a moment. So we're just in the process of, uh, start getting that one going. Uh, and yeah, so we should do six ventures this year. Wow. Wow. Okay. I can see why you're having trouble with fitting everything in your day. So tell me what makes a good entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, really good question because I guess like, most venture capital companies think about deal flow as how many, you know, new startups can I see and therefore I get to see 150 and I choose one or two a month and I invest in those. Our, our, our pipeline and our deal flow is slightly different. We know we, we look for really experienced entrepreneurs and so, you know, that's that's kind of how we think about things. And so, you know, we're leveraging our network, we're doing events, you know, we're reaching out to other founders and VCs and things. But um, a, a good entrepreneur is, uh, you know, someone I guess has had some experience of scaling. They know how to 
basically just going to grow a business from you know from zero to to one, and ideally from one to ten. Uh, they've got the battle scars. They might not have been successful, and actually, to be honest, it doesn't matter if they have or not. It's about have they actually learned some lessons through the the business building uh, expertise? Because we don't need them to be climate scientists or have any kind of science or engineering. We need them to be able to think about scaling. So, have they demonstrated, or can they demonstrate, um, you know, the the thinking and the experience and maybe the battle scars of of, of scaling uh, a business? Um, and so, so th- I guess that's the first thing. Secondly, you know, having a passion uh, for and a, and a mission for sustainability. You know, if, if they're doing this to to get rich, then on the journey they may find other more revenue generating or other alternatives, which can take the business off onto a right angle from where you know I guess we we we're, we're kind of approaching things. And so that mission alignment is absolutely key. Um, and I guess we also look for you know signs or experience of resilience and grit because you know building a startup uh, is not easy. Building a startup in the climate and sustainability space is is challenging. But particularly because you know a lot of our stakeholders, it's a highly fragmented market. You know, let, you, you talk about rice, you've got forty million farmers. You know, you're talking about factory you've got like tens of thousands of factories. It's highly fragmented, highly traditional. And how do you therefore go out to market? How do you, what's their distribution? How do you, and that's that's going to require a different mindset, uh, scaling mindset and go-to market mindset that we, that we look for. So those are kind of, those are kind of the, the, the key, the key areas. Um, now, you know, what was quite interesting for me, um, and I will come as no surprise to you, but for me was a, was a revelation was, um, uh, going from a from property guru, whereas you know real estate is uh, and construction industry is he- heavily male dominated. In 2018, when I started to explore this space and sustainability space, I was really really pleasantly surprised by all the sustainability managers, chief sustainability managers, CSOs that I was meeting were mostly women, and that kind of filled me with a lot of hope and optimism for the future. That actually you know we've got some you know sensible people who are going to help us take us to a rosier future. But then uh, to my sadness, discovered that actually at a founder level we still have uh it's still heavily male dominated and so one of the things that's been keeping me awake is how do we how do we how do we change this and uh you know some horror stories which i'm sure you've heard and uh, uh in terms of from from the the women founders i you know in my own portfolio but also outside of that have experienced um and also how male dominated still the investment community still is you know so at a senior partner level the, the vcs are still not enough representation uh, amongst women so we're doing a lot of work, including we have an event tonight, uh, which we're partnering with Harriet on uh, to try and you know encourage and think about how we support and how we invest and fund more female-led founders, and in our case, particularly around the climate tech space. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, I guess specific to to that subject, you know, I guess if anyone's interested generally, but also you know, women who, who are interested in starting a business in in this sustainability space, I'd be very very happy to to explore further. Mm, yeah, I think absolutely. And it's very interesting, the skew and the bias there. And, and a lot of it is unconscious bias. But, you know, I do think also for lots of reasons, women aren't represented at founder level. But yeah, there's a real opportunity there. And my business, Honeycombers, is something like 90% female. And we also have a lot of people who work part time. And I just see that as 
I suppose, being a little bit clever because the smartest women don't want to work full time and they don't do it for the money, you know, and they're just, they really value to be able to be home at three o'clock so they can actually also be a great mum. And I, I tapped onto that little pool in Singapore years ago and it's really helped me build a business with a really smart workforce that is incredibly talented, but part-time doesn't really exist in Asia, you know, it's, it's crazy. No, it doesn't. There's huge demand, though. I mean, you know, if I think about the portfolio, so I was having a conversation with one of those, in fact, the Agros, actually. Um, and actually, not just them, but it's also the bulk of those companies. They're, they're, most of the companies I work with are roughly the Series A, plus or minus. Um, so they're starting to think about organizational development. They're starting to think about professionalizing organization a little bit. And so they don't need, for example, a full-time CFO. But they, if they, they, they would love to have someone like one day a week as a CFO, or, you know, senior, you know, financial planning and, and analysis person, maybe for two days a week. And so at that certain level, there's this huge opportunity. And so for sort of fractional roles or part-time roles. Um, so it's, um, you know, I think there's, I see the demand. I also see the opportunity. And I guess you, know, you, you obviously clearly managed to kind of make that work. Um, I don't know why that doesn't happen more. But um, yeah, uh, most of my portfolio companies would bite the hand off, you know, somebody who can, who's happy to do two or three days a week or two or three days a month even, uh, depending on, on the role. Yeah, I suppose it's cultural in Singapore, I think. You know, it's like if you're not working full-time, you're not committed or, you know. As you said, it's super smart, right? Why, why wouldn't you do that if you could, right? Maybe it's a stigma, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. It's an interesting one. I'm conscious of your time. I could literally chat to you all day, but I know you've got 11 more meetings to go to. I want to ask you, do you have any key business advice or business mantras that you keep coming back to? Yeah, I think it's specific to um, uh, to startups. I think, you know, the key one, which I think has served me well and also my portfolio well, is just really, really getting real clarity around what's the big problem you're trying to solve. And I, I know that sounds really obvious, but quite often I speak to founders and they're trying to push their technology or their product at, at, at an audience um, rather than actually thinking, well, what is the real pain point that, that, that you're trying to solve? And I guess that's kind of the approach that we take with Wavemaker Impact. Like over a six-month period, we spend a lot of time just thinking about that um, and how to address that. And so that's the key one for me. And if you can identify a big enough pain point that's not being addressed, there is going to be a big opportunity there. And so in the case of probably Guru, is around just the intransparency of, you know, trying to find a home and $250 billion of homes or real estate being transacted every year. Huge problem, uh, huge value there as well. And that, in the case now with climate change, you know, just as just in Southeast Asia, $2.7 trillion is going to have to go into decarbonizing, you know, Southeast Asia and that, and that transition process. So that $2.7 trillion is the addressable market and, and you'll be a subset. So what's the, but what's the big pain point in there? Uh, that unlocks the 2.7 trillion. So spending time really get clarity on the stakeholders and their pain points and focusing on solving that. Yeah, no, I think that's a very valid point about pain points. And I do think entrepreneurs skip over it all the time because they want to get to solution because they've fallen in love with their idea. And actually the idea is the fun bit. And actually the digging into the pain point and doing the research is actually hard work. And everyone's like, oh, I've done enough of that. Let's move on to the solution. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Or, or there's multiple pain points amongst five or six different stakeholders. So we're going to solve all the problems for all those stakeholders versus, okay, let's double down on the big one and that big one then becomes a driver for the others and in our in a profit guru cases around the consumers right and and if you get the consumers and you get you know 40 50 million eyeballs then the real estate agents the banks the property developers also want to 
join in. But solving the one big pain point, which in our case was that, was was the driver. And I think that is is, is really, really hard when you see all these, as an entrepreneur, you see all these opportunities everywhere and you want to pursue all these opportunities. But actually that prioritization and focus on the, on the, on the big one, um, it, was, it, was a, it was an important lesson I had to go through as well with Profit Europe. Yeah, not getting distracted. So I wanted to ask you, how big has community been? I mean, you've spoken a little bit about EO and having your, uh, I suppose, inner circle of advisors and mentors and, and pals, but what has community played for you in business? I think it's huge. I think if you want to succeed as an entrepreneur particularly, I think having nurturing and building and staying connected to the community is is really really important, and it might be a startup community. So think about you know I guess your I guess our time when we started our businesses right um, there was no real startup community to speak of right in Singapore when we both started, and then see how that's transformed and you know so now you know there were no investors, there's no co-working spaces, there's no you know incubators, accelerators. Now you've got like maritime alt protein, you know co-working space for sustainability and sustainable finance. You've got you know, you know, pre, pre, pre seed, seed, right through to $250 million kind of private equity companies investing in this space, you know, B2C, B2B, deep tech, blockchain, sustainability, climate, you know, so the whole level of sophistication of startup ecosystem, I think, has really changed. And therefore, that's one big community, I think, which provides enormous opportunity for support for a, for a startup. And I think the other one is just around uh, the business, the sector ecosystem and community. I mean, how do you kind of nurture that and build that? So in my case, it's around you know, sustainability broad, but within their climate and, and, and emissions. And so I think you know, that's that's where you can find great talent. It's where you can find great clients. It's where you can find potential investors. And so you know, nurturing and building that is a really important role, I think, of being an entrepreneur, that part of that business development, you know, always selling mode, I guess, uh, is really, really important. Mm, yeah. I mean, if nothing else for your own sanity, it's important, right? Just to have those people that you can ring up and dump on. <laughs> and tell me, have you got a business collaboration or a partnership that you could share that was something that really transformed, I don't know, one of your businesses, maybe maybe Property Guru or maybe one of your newer ones that you're investing in? Um. So, well, it depends what you mean. From a business point of view, I guess, I think obviously from a support point of view, entrepreneur organization was, was a fantastic example. And uh, I would encourage any, anyone to kind of, you know, explore that as a support mechanism for an entrepreneur taking a more holistic approach. Um, but in terms of business, I think, um, so back to the community building, I think uh, that kind of investing a little bit of time into that is really important. And, and you know, as I guess, as, as I'm sure you do as well, Chris, you know, do a lot of public speaking. And sometimes you think, well, what's the ROI on this? You know, really, is it actually having any kind of meaningful impact? And I haven't quite got the answer to this yet, but you know, that, 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 you know, sometimes it's a bit hit and miss, but you know, I was, I was on a panel about nine months ago and talking about what we're doing at Waymaker Impact and talking about methane and rice. And then sitting next to me was the guy from Temasek Agri Food. He said, Oh, that's an area we're looking at as well. And, uh, how about we have a conversation? He said, Oh, but I was talking to the guys at, you know, Breakthrough Energy Ventures about this as well. So suddenly, you know, from that very, I was thinking, what, why am I doing this talk? <laughs> to suddenly, you know, six months later, we've got business and we've got collaboration with, you know, some, 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 some powerhouses in this, in, in, you know, and partners, um, in, in this, 
industry who really know their stuff and they can help open doors and provide, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding into the venture that we're building. So, um, yeah. It's a great example of how just showing up and investing without knowing what's going to come back is worthwhile because you never know what's going to come back, especially if it's in your space. Yeah. I think I should I just to summarize this in one way. So one of my portfolio companies, you know, said it really, really neatly. And actually, I'm now copying and using, but I'll, I'll give him credit for it later on, uh, was just increasing your surface luck area. So, you know, by doing these touch points, you increase your surface luck. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like that as well. Surface luck area. That's a very scientific way. <laughs> <laughs> He's an engineer. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, it's very masculine. Like in the feminine, it would be talking about creating an energy or a space. But I love that surface luck area. I love it. My last question to you is, so at Launchpad, and I suppose myself personally, I believe a rising tide floats all boats. So I'd love to know, have you got an entrepreneur we should have on this podcast who would be an inspiring and who's running a good business? I, I would have two recommendations. So it really depends on what kind of person you want. So one person would be um, Doreen Chanaz, who basically started the business called Impact Investment Exchange, which is uh, started as an impact investing platform um, and has kind of pioneered a lot of the impact investing that sort of happens today, but also particularly around gender. And so she's been supporting women-led social enterprises across emerging markets for about 14 years um, and pioneered this thing called Orange Bonds, um, orange being the color of, of the SDG around, you know, uh, gender lens. Um, as part of that women's livelihood bond, which I invested in, which was basically, you know, supporting women led businesses. Now, gender plus climate. Um, I think one, one, uh, recommendation. The other one would be, um, uh, Brandon, um, at Amped, who is the person who came up with that surface lock area. And so what he's doing is decarbonizing the, the, the construction industry by replacing essentially diesel generators on construction sites with essentially a big battery, um, which is not only saves a lot of money, uh, for the construction companies, but also reduces emissions by 80%, but also reduces air quality challenges. You know, think about a big urban environment, you're breathing in these horrible diesel fumes. That's all gone. Um, and so he started off his business in, in Hong Kong um, and then scaled it to Singapore, to Australia, to Europe and now US. Um, and so great, great story, you know, they're generating tens of millions of dollars of revenue um, and, a, and a great story of, you know, someone focusing on this, you know, sustainability space, but also able to then scale uh, to multiple markets in a very traditional industry. So take your pick. Mm, mm, okay, I love that. I will take my pick. Do you know? It's very hard choosing your favorite best, you know, best child, right? Out of the 25. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've, I've just done that. <laughs> I've now alienated the other 23. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry, the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Do you know, Doreen used to be my old boss. So that is a full circle moment. She was my boss at Asia City Publishing, which was where I worked before I started Honey. So there you go. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a small, small world that we, uh, small circle that we weave. Steve, thank you so much for your time. As I said, I could honestly speak to you for hours, but it's been totally fascinating and I love what you're doing and it's so in alignment with what we're doing at Launchpad. So I'm looking forward to our journeys crossing multiple times in the future. That sounds great. And thanks very much for having me on. And well done for doing this as well. I think it's a great initiative. And uh, yeah, I uh, look forward to seeing future success from you and, and, and also this initiative. And hopefully see you in Singapore soon. Yes, that sounds great, Steve. All right. Take care. Three things I learned from this chat today. 
One, I don't think any of us are thinking big enough. Steve's thinking really big. And I find that incredibly inspiring. I think I want to think bigger. Two, I really feel like Steve's honesty about managing work-life balance and how hard it is to find the right balance when you're incredibly passionate and you're also extremely motivated by the climate change disaster we have in front of us. It's very humbling and reassuring to know that I'm not alone in my, my stress and fear around this, but also that just being able to have an off switch and being able to manage that amount of work versus amount of pleasure and and just getting that balance right is difficult even for someone as experienced and as senior as Steve. And number three, I think I'm just totally inspired. I feel like Steve's story and what they're doing at Wavemaker Impact is something I will be talking about for many months to come. And It's definitely exciting to see him with his ambitions for Wavemaker Impact and I'm really thrilled to be in the orbit of Steve and to be able to have someone in our community like this. So I feel like it's very inspiring and uplifting. But um, yeah, let me know what you think. I'd be really interested to hear from you and I hope that this chat inspires you has has inspired me to create your own good business thank you for listening to good business okay i'm gonna let you in on a little secret selfishly i created this podcast for my own personal growth so i could go deep with entrepreneurs that truly inspire me of course i also wanted a wider listenership to think about having impact and our wonderful community at Launchpad, where we're all aspiring to create better businesses together. If you have enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to leave a review or perhaps share this podcast episode with a friend. That's how podcast episodes get discovered. And I would love more entrepreneurs to think more deeply about their business and about creating a heart-led business with a bigger impact than just profit. And I'm sure you would too. So go ahead and post something on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook and spread the word. I will be forever grateful. Thanks again for listening. And I hope that you feel as inspired as I am to create your own good business.